0: Somebody staged a poetry boxing contest. Instead of attacking each other, they shouted poems at each other.
1: Poetry boxing and molecular chemistry might seem like two very different things. Yet for one Nobel laureate, writing and science have both been vital parts of what made him a successful researcher and a whole person. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. You just heard Joachim Frank, the 2017 Chemistry Laureate. He was awarded the prize together with Jacques Dubochet and Richard Henderson for his work in developing cryo electron microscopy. Frank is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biophysics at Columbia University. But he's also a poet, a novelist, and a photographer artistic endeavours that he describes as absolutely crucial to his academic career. It's a career that was triggered by growing up in the ruins of post-war Germany.
0: There is something about the rubble in and the, and the ruins that made me think that maybe this was a key for me to search for order.
1: Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Seitz Stiftung. Joachim Frank talks about taking writing classes at the local library, publishing his first novel in 2019, and the relief of being awarded a Nobel Prize after years of scientific struggle. But first, he discusses the contrast between his life in New York or his summer house in the Berkshires, where he's been stationed during the pandemic, and his childhood in the German mining town of Siegen.
2: I mean, New York is a very different place from where you grew up. Tell me about your home.
0: This is a place, a mountainous place, 100 kilometres east from Bonn on the same line. It's been very secluded or separate from the other places. It has its own dialect, the Siegelander dialect, which has very unique forms you know, some some diction is different, and the most peculiar thing is that it has the English R. It's the R. Uh, <laughs> that, that's how we... And uh, it's um, a traditionally um, a, a place where iron manufacturing is was very big, and in fact, it was the first place of iron mining in uh, in Germany. They learned iron mining and iron. Manufacturing from the, from the Celts right. 2,000 years ago. So the iron industry was very strong still when I was uh, growing up. And it was the very reason why, why my hometown w- was bombed. 80% was destroyed in the war. And uh, my own house, my parents' house, uh, was hit by, by bombs, by incendiary bombs and burnt the, the roof burnt and we were forced to, uh,
2: to move 20 kilometres away. So you were very young when that happened, I think just four years old. But do you remember it?
0: Yeah, I remember it very clearly. Yes, I remember standing in front of the house and seeing a sea of fire around us. And it was really my first, my first memory, really. And it was very traumatic. And in the aftermath, there were a lot of disruptions of of life. Uh, We had to move as a family with my two siblings. The third sibling was not born yet. And so we moved to a place, my father was a judge. And this is why he found a place by a colleague of his, his colleague, had a very stately residence in a nearby town. It was, an, in fact, a 17th-century castle, and so we 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 got a very spacious apartment there.
2: But that's a nice place to be moved to, but nevertheless, to be displaced is unpleasant. And and then when you moved back home, you moved back into a town where 80% had been bombed. It must have been very strange living in a place like
0: that. Yes, and, and my first, you know, real memories were to play on, uh, in the rubble of uh, ruins uh, right, right next door. There were, were ruins and uh, there were fantastic discoveries of electric circuits, uh, backlight uh, boxes, fuse boxes, uh, copper wire. It was beautiful, beautiful play- playground. <laughs> Slightly dangerous. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Not covered trapdoors. You know, some that led into uh, basements and so forth. We we found mice, a family of mice. Uh, you know, with pink, pink little. Uh, yeah. All this was an incredible experience to me, and um, it was an ideal playground. We we couldn't we couldn't really tell our parents what. What exactly we were doing. <laughs> so to this day, I'm, I'm attracted and disturbed at the same time by, by anything that is chaotic. When I see pictures in the paper where, you know, now, uh, now the Hamas uh, Israel confrontation and see a, a front picture of, of the urban area destroyed, it grabs me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very strongly affected.
2: You were a very curious child. You, you were a young experimentalist. Yeah. I'm very taken by this description in your uh, biography that you wrote for um, the Nobel website, where you speak of being most attracted by the 20-volume encyclopedia in your parents' house
0: uh yes uh, this is uh is a tome of a work uh It probably involved more than a thousand scholars for for the individual entries you could uh, i don't know you can pick any idea that you like or uh, any contraption any any thought uh any philosophy and you could get uh a very long article about this, you know? So I read these things and I don't know how much I read. I I probably didn't read everything, but I spent my time with this kind of stuff and it was very unique experience. Uh, And it was 1905, which, which really means that all this knowledge came to a standstill <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly in the year when these uh, three fabulous papers by Einstein uh, came, came out <laughs> that transformed uh, everything that we know.
2: Yes, you are exposed to a frozen moment in time before the advent of quantum mechanics, but, but, but exposed to everything encyclopedias contain. The world's knowledge. So, what a marvelous education! But how marvelous that you wanted to delve into it. Because I suppose so many families have encyclopedias or had encyclopedias at home, but it's it's not so many children who spend their leisure hours reading them.
0: Right, right. And uh, it, only later I saw the irony in the title. It's called Conversations Lexicon, which which implies that you cannot really, as a person, conduct a conversation without having access to, to this uh, 20,000 pages. <laughs> <laughs> you, you,
2: must, you must find yourself lonely in conversation as you wander around the world looking for other people who've also in, in, imbibed 20,000 pages. <laughs> Do you think you could have grown up to be the same person now finding instead of an encyclopedia on the shelves... Google at your fingertips?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I think, well, I'm not so sure because I I read this at an age where I simply took, I took everything that was in written form for granted. I wouldn't question it. Mm. This knowledge was so above. But uh, thinking about this, even now I see there's so much disinformation as a younger person I might uh, also have uh, very uncritically digested it you know they get a sense they get a sense that that information itself can can be tainted or even produced from from scratch you know it's it's something very complicated i mean you you essentially the model of authority are your parents. So if they speak about something that is outside of your own area of knowledge, then then you you, you simply accept it.
2: And I suppose the big difference is that, uh, I mean, the, the well, there are two big differences. One is, as you've mentioned, uh, the encyclopedia is curated, whereas um, much of what you find online is not. Yeah. But the other thing is that the encyclopedia just exposes you to things you weren't expecting by opening the page, and there it is. And it's difficult to do that on a computer. You, you search and you direct yourself to content, but you don't just encounter things very often that you hadn't been looking for.
0: Yes, yes, that that is a very decisive difference. That's really true. It's really like wandering uh, through a landscape and, and finding things uh, at every step. In a very disorganized way because the organization by alphabet is, is completely random uh, as far as the contents is concerned.
2: Yes, and I wonder whether your exposure has made you also approach the world in an alphabetical sense. Do you, do you find well, that?
0: Well, there's, there's something about the rubble and the, and the ruins that made me think that maybe this was a key for me to, to search for order to make up the world uh, or the remake the world in in some kind of a rational way and and so that would be the key to finding satisfaction in a science uh, science career
2: well certainly there is a connection there isn't there because i mean your your work in cry uem and the the gradual working out of how to turn two dimensional images into a Reconstructed three-dimensional image is very much mm. ordering things, sorting things out. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it all fits together. Are you somebody who generally likes to uh, do puzzles? And are you a crossword fanatic? Or you, do you like chess? Is, is, no, is it-
0: puzzles uh, are are just. I'm, I'm too impatient for this. And chess, I don't have the. I don't have the concentration that allows me to to strategize and keep track of, of strategies. My mind is not, not built this way, but I have uh, a huge capacity for associative memory. I, I discovered that this is probably this is probably why I became successful because of, of the way I can write, because of the way I, I find solutions. I find solutions to problems by looking at, at places where nobody else is looking, or I'm in search of a problem, and my day-to-day experience with something completely different provides a clue. So so, so these kinds of things might make me different from, from other people.
1: Joachim Frank has dedicated his scientific career to creating detailed pictures of the smallest building blocks of life. He's regarded as the founder of the field of single particle cryo-EM, a microscope technology that uses electron beams and frozen samples to assemble detailed three-dimensional models of molecules, such as enzymes and viruses. During the pandemic, cryo-EM has played an important role, Thoroughly mapping the spike protein on the coronavirus, and paving the way for swift development of safe vaccines.
0: It's, it's really uh, remarkable that cryo you know, could contribute so much in the, in the recent time, and uh, i I call this just in time, and the critical moment is 2012. Uh, it's the introduction of these super cameras, uh, single electron-counting cameras, which transformed the field. Because before, a single particle cryo that I've been working on continued to make improvements uh, and told us quite a bit about the dynamics of molecules, but it failed to go. Uh, get to atomic resolution. And it's only these cameras dealt with what, what I consider a trivial problem. It's at the very end of image formation, okay? You know, you have these wonderful electron microscopes and in the end, the information was just not conveyed in the right way. And so we had a situation where all the mathematical apparatus in order to retrieve the information and render molecules at atomic resolution, all that was there, but the signal the capture of the signal in the electron microscope itself was not on par with this. And 2012 was this decisive moment where all that obstacle was removed. So then all of a sudden, single particle cryo became a, a contender, a serious contender in, in structural biology.
2: Presumably, people were screaming for these cameras to be produced with a high enough resolution. So what happened in 2012 to make it happen?
0: There were efforts going on for developing this kind of technology, and this was happening in three academic institutions independently. And each of these groups worked together with a commercial company, with different ones. And because of the constant rumor mill and so forth, somehow they all managed to come out at the same time with commercial products. So in 2012, all three uh, commercial companies came out with uh, similar types of camera, similar kind of uh, performance. What I call just-in-time referred to the fact that when you look between 2012 and now, there were five pandemics that all essentially happened, and... Produced a need for technology that imaged molecules in dynamic states. So the whole single particle cryo was just there in time to deal with this kind of information. And these are dengue, Zika, Ebola, MERS, and the present virus. So in all cases, the information about how the virus interacted with the host. It required that the dynamics would be characterized as well, not just the structure. Mm. And that's what cryo-EM allows you to do? Yes, yes, because you get multiple structures. You You can even map the entire information
2: in a continuous range. Let's turn to your writing. Obviously, such an important part of your life and who you are. It's available to all on this open website, Frank's Fiction. The writing is now in English. Did you start writing in German before you moved to English-speaking countries? Yes, I wrote
0: in German. And uh, I actually, I rediscovered some of the writing recently. And you know, I, I experimented in I experimented in a way that was uh, what I now think is was ahead of its time. But if you if you are in in the you know thinking about yourself as an author in Germany, is sort of ridiculous. You, you see, you see the Dichter und Denker, and the the current people that are. Being featured in the feuilleton, they are just so full of themselves and and they are a complete different league. You know, it, it's impossible to think of yourself as a writer, at least at that time in, in Germany. You know, it, it, it was ridiculous. There was no path to becoming recognized in any way. And and so so all this was sort of, I, I wrote this and then. In fact, later on, I had a whole collection of very short pieces. And later, when I was in the U.S. already, I made an attempt to peddle this to um, one of those small literary magazines as a collection. And there was some interest, but it never got to pass. And then I, I I started writing in English fairly early on while I was in, in England. And then later, quite a bit when I was in Albany, I had the fortune to be able to be in a writing class with William Kennedy, who later, you know, came out very big. But at the time, he, he was just teaching a class in the in the Albany Public Library for housewives and uh, you know in evening class and and I joined it, and I got a lot of encouragement from him
2: it's nice that as a young newly independent researcher at the university of albany um presumably very much focused on building your lab and your career and all the rest of it you also had if you like the humility to go to writing classes in the evening at the local library it's it's quite a special thing
0: well you wouldn't call it humility because uh, because uh, English was my second language, and and so so I didn't feel competent. Uh, I didn't feel competent, and I I was surprised that I got uh, such encouragement. And I wrote a short story where William Kennedy said you got so much material in there you you should really write a whole novel with this, which which I which I now. Published, yeah.
2: So, so that was in fact the genus of uh, Anzie.
0: Anzie, yes, yes. At the very end, I write a little epilogue, giving credit to William Kennedy for getting me started with <laughs> this.
1: Anzie is Joachim Frank's first novel. It centres on a German-born American scientist of atmospheric disturbances, who returns to Europe to speak at a conference in the Hague and ends up in a mysterious hotel, the titular Anzier, where he is confronted by his past. It was written during his time in Albany in the 1980s, finished in 1994, but remained unpublished until 2019.
2: When you started writing in English, did you find a very different reception for your desire to be an author, that it wasn't the German kind of um, hostility to the idea of the non-professional
0: Yes, but uh, I had some difficulties getting uh, getting published. It was a very long, long time until I was able to publish some some of the writing, and these were these were typically, you know, sort of really fast fast pieces, very, you know, short short stories and so forth. In fact, uh, the, the main difficulty for me was really the idiomatics idiomatics as well as the dialogue. And it was only when I came to know that, that I, I could master dialogue to to some extent that that I felt more confident. Hmm.
2: The the scene you found yourself as part of in the in Albany was sounded quite sort of wild and creative. The this collective of uh, Yeah this writers.
0: workspace workspace collective. I've recently, it was last year, I donated my my entire archive from that time uh, to SUNY Albany. It was astonished. I got it, how do you say, assessed. uh, The value was assessed, uh, which I had to do for tax reasons. It was assessed at uh, (laughs) $70,000. It was simply because of the unique period of time and the richness of the material that has never been really explored by research. Hmm. Uh, So it is now available, uh, publicly available at at SUNY Albany.
2: Give us a a glimpse into what was going on in that collective.
0: (laughs) Well, it it was founded by J.C. Garrett, uh, who is now in San Francisco. And uh, the idea, the main idea was really that uh, art, was essentially in the, in the possession of uh, the art and art commerce was in the possession of very privileged uh, people and and so it, it was a workers' party kind of approach to bringing art to the people without cost and and encouraging uh, free expression that didn't have a ballast of, of canon it, it should really be. Be just an you know expression, a free expression in, in any medium, and so uh, it collected people who, in in their own medium, were quite creative. We had someone who composed uh, poets in sign language and performed them uh, in a very dramatic way. In a way that you really you were touched. You were you know, absolutely touched by this. And there was a, a somebody a staged a poetry boxing contest in which people actually were dressed like boxers and had box, uh, box gloves, but instead of attacking each other, they shouted poems at each other. <laughs> and some of these poems were, were, in fact, they were attacked to the boxing gloves so they just had to turn the boxy glove around in a particular way, and then he, they could they could read their poems and shout it at at, at the other one. At, at the same time, a uh, someone uh, played the uh, how do you say the uh, a, a sports reporter right a sports a, a sports reporter and really uh, accompanied this with with crescendo and. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah yeah Um, i guess that for some it will be a surprise that um, somebody who is working on deep and complex scientific problems is spending their spare time doing something as wild and free as that for you are they part of the same thing or do you see them as two separate worlds when you're in the lab are you one person or when you're I don't know, watching poetry, boxing, are you another?
0: Well, uh, there are different aspects to it. And I, I really see it as, as part of the same thing, different activities, different expressions of, of uh, creativity, uh, but they have, uh, they have completely different uh, constraints. And it is in part that I find constraint that I have to follow as a scientist, that that makes me seek uh, something that is completely free. I can express myself in a a free way. So so as part, I I can see this as compensation. Uh, It's the only condition under which I can even do science.
2: Expand on that statement that it's the only condition under which I can do science.
0: Essentially, I would find myself a person who is very confined and uh, cannot really fulfil it true humanity. I, I find myself very restricted as a person. If I'm forced to do only science for a period of time, for instance, if I do, uh, I have to uh, meet a grant a grant application deadline, or have to produce a manuscript under pressure, uh, and, and and all these things. Then I find myself completely exhausted afterwards, and, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I want to run away mm. uh, from this. Similar, uh, the confinement in, in a conference, in a scientific conference, after two days, I, I, I really want to do something completely different. <laughs>
2: And of course, I mean, people often speak about that, about, you know, how it's essential to take a break and you need to take a walk or something just to kind of clear your mind. But this is different. I mean, going off and composing a short story, writing a poem, going off and doing that is not just relaxing, it's, it's creating in a, different, in a different environment. And it's just interesting to think about the interplay between that creation and the scientific creation.
0: Yeah, I mean, this interplay is the corpus callosum between the two different uh, halves of the brain, I think, and so maybe, maybe I uh, discovered a way of engaging them uh, and letting them them talk to each other uh, very frequently.
2: So one other thing that, um, if you like, travels through the corpus callosum or your corpus callosum is photography which is also such an important part of your life. Uh, Where does the photography fit in?
0: Well, this this is really uh, the incidental discoveries that you make. These are essentially the kind of photography that I do feeds from sudden recognitions of of details. Uh, I see them completely in isolation. Uh, so it could be a little plant that struggles to grow right next to the to a rust, uh, rusty post, despite all obstacles. You know, like cement everywhere, and it, it's still and so capture this in the right way, then it becomes almost a statement of of uh, freedom or struggle and, and and so forth. So so these these kinds of things. Which Which are really already in my mind, and I find reflected there, so there's an infinite variety of these details where I find my ideas confirmed in some way, <laughs> uh, or i made dis- I make discoveries just because of uh, very unique uh, juxtapositions that I've never seen before and uh, so so there is some kind of a resonance
2: there. It's exactly those unexpected juxtapositions which I think come across in your photography and also seem to fit in with your, your worldview, this associative way of looking at the world. So one juxtaposition which you found yourself a part of is Joachim Frank and the Nobel Prize. And those the two worlds have collided how has the receipt of the nobel prize fitted in with the rest of your life
0: what well, it it sort of gave it a it, it gave it a meaning in some way very often i had points where i sort of despaired about you know being a scientist i i you know especially as I, as i told you i i got frustrated by just doing only science. So I always had to some kind of, and had to do something else. Sometimes I asked myself a question, what, what if I had uh, pursued another career, where would I be? Then all of a sudden uh, there, there was some kind of repay for very many frustrating things that I encountered. Uh, there was a lack of recognition right at the beginning. Uh, there was, uh, you know, with the whole method was poo-pooed uh, for a certain time. I mean, the, the travel, the amount of travel that I've done, which is now in my long CV, strikes me as, as absolutely impossible. I'm um, impossible that one even could, could do all these things. You know, it's, it, it, it's so much strain, so much stress so many passports that are lost and (laughs) things that happened on the way, you know, I hurt, I got hurt somewhere. But, you know, all all these different things. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, yes, uh, oh, my God, yeah, this somehow makes up for it. (laughs) But I, I see myself as very lucky because it is so improbable uh, to get into the such, a, such a position. And, and so there has to be humility associated with it. It is really fate that, that struck me.
2: Going forward, is it is it still the same Joachim Frank, scientist, writer, photographer, who continues? Do you do all three? Do you keep all three going on and on?
0: Uh, yes, yes, uh, certainly, and uh, I realized that uh, without a Nobel Prize, I would uh, probably have retired. Uh, but now I—it's a very exciting time in science, and in this particular area of science, and uh, I can see still a role for myself, a creative role in science. Uh, but more and more, I'm. I'm really looking for spending more and more time with writing. I have, uh, we have a number of novels uh, on the shelf that need, uh, need a lot of work and, uh, and that, that all keeps me going. And I have, a, I have a garden here, I have a beautiful garden. I have a, a greenhouse that was just put together. It was imported from uh, British Columbia in a thousand pieces and we had to put it together here.
2: That sounds like a complicated way to build a greenhouse. <laughs>
0: <but> <laughs> yeah.
2: It takes us back to the cryo-EM. A thousand pieces rebuilding. It's all. Yeah, but it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Important difference. It's been a, a huge pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks to all the uh, stuff that you brought up. It's very stimulating for me.
1: You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist. Magnus Yilier and me, Claire Brilliant Music by Epidemic Sound In Season 3 we welcome guests from all six prize categories Literature Laureate Wale Suinka, Economic Sciences Laureate Paul Milgram Peace Laureate Leima Bowie Medicine Laureate Elizabeth Blackburn Physics Laureate Didier Coulot and the guest we just heard Chemistry Laureate, Joachim Frank. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in how growing up in a war zone affected another Nobel Laureate, check out the episode with Liberian peace activist, Lema Bowie. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarven, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.